Um, if you know another youth pastor in your life, ask them if they're preaching today. I bet they are. So, um, Pastor John, um, our the pastor of the Center Church, um, is not with us this week. He is in France. We feel really bad for him. I'm sure it's hard. Um, but that's the cross that he has to carry this week. Um, he is with his wife, Lindsay, and they are up in the mountains doing things like running, um, which is something that they like to do, which might surprise some of you that, that someone would do that by choice for fun, but that is what they do. We don't judge around here, so at the Center Church, we wish them the very best. In the mountains of France, they're having an awesome time. Um, well, hey, again, like I said, uh, happy Labor Day weekend to you. I hope you all have um, some amazing plans today, this week, as, as the rest of this weekend goes on. Please just hear, hear from me today. I want you to enjoy every last bit of this beautiful Michigan summer that we have. If you're not planning to get outside today, it's going to be a beautiful day. I know it's raining right now. Get outside today. I promise you it'll be beautiful. Enjoy your day off tomorrow, or if you're off, or school, school's off tomorrow, yeah? That would stand to reason. Okay, it's been a little bit since I've been in school. But um, again, happy Labor Day weekend. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for spending um, some of that weekend here at the Center Church. I'm excited that you're here. I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak to you again. Um, I'm not really sure who I'm grateful to. I guess, God, you don't have any say and who gets to speak to you this morning. So um, that will be me. So <laughs> let's do this thing. Um, here's the deal. I want to start this morning by telling you all a story from my childhood. And I know you're all very excited now. So I'm going to take you back um, to a long, long long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The year is, let's say, 2004. Everyone remember 2004? It's a good year. It's a good year, right? You guys kind of barely remember 2004, right? <laughs> um, the year's 2004. We're in Muskegon, Michigan, okay? This is the town that I was not born in, but the, the town that I was raised in. Um, it is the middle of the school year, and I'm at home. Now, if you're wondering why I'm at home in the middle of the school year, um, a lot of you know this about me. If I had the chance to tell you um, I was homeschooled, and I haven't, if I haven't actually told you that, you may have figured it out at this point um, that I was homeschooled. I feel like that's just a joke I could make because I was homeschooled. So sorry if there's other homeschoolers in the room. Um, it's not a knock Kind of, it is, but mainly towards me. So um, I'm at home, I'm excited, we're in the middle of our school day, we're just wrapping up some of the more boring elements of the school day, if we can be honest. Things like math, science, like those kinds of things weren't really my thing um, when I was in school, they're not really my thing today as an adult, but I was starting to get very, very excited, and do you want to know why? It was almost my very favorite part of the school day and not lunchtime. That's my second favorite part of the school day. My first all-time favorite part of the school day was reading time, and that's the most homeschooled thing I've said all morning. So the most exciting part of my day, reading time. Now, reading time in the Ender's household was not this, okay? It was not like everyone just goes and grabs their book, and then they, like, they go to their little area, and they start reading to themselves, like their own story, right? Reading time was an experience in the Ender's household. My mom, um, who my wonderful mother, who managed to, to homeschool me and two of my younger siblings, I don't know how she did it to this very day. She'd call us all together. We'd get together, and she'd say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's reading time now. I'm going to read to you. We'd read amazing, timeless, classic storybooks like the ones I'm about to show you. Anybody remember these? The Boxcar Children. Are there, like, are there not like 560 of these? Like, there's so many. Like, this is number three, which, I don't know, that must have been like right towards the beginning of the Boxcar Children story. Remember the Boxcar Children? She would read us those. 
Little House on the Prairie, yeah. A lot of you know like the movie or the TV show, right? There was a novel that actually came before that. Anne of Green Gables. Anne, okay, there we go. Anne with an E. It's very important. Anne with an E. Classic, classic storytime book. Perhaps the greatest of all time. And I'll just go ahead and say this. The greatest of all time, the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, C.S. Lewis's wonderful work um, in that book. But we used to just go all in on story time. My mother, my wonderful, amazing mother, it, she would not just like open the book and begin to read to us, okay? What she would do is she had this labyrinth of voices and character acting and personality traits and, and little quirks that all these different characters would have. And as those characters would start to speak, my mom would shift into like an, an, an English accent or whatever, like Mr. Tumnus, like that sort of thing. You guys remember like that, that from the book? I don't know where my mom even got some of that stuff from, how she knew exactly how those characters sounded, but she did. And as she began to read to us, you guys, it was like being transported back into, in time, to a different place in a different time, and we would be experiencing these worlds and these stories. Um, as a kid, it was incredible. Story time was amazing. Now, here's kind of the interesting thing about being a Christian homeschool kid. Anyone grow up in a Christian home? I'll raise your hand if you grew up in a Christian home. Anyone homeschooled? Any other homeschoolers in the room? I guess you should ask. Wes? No, you're not. Okay. So, Mal, you are. That's right. That's right. Okay. So, oh, and, and Peter in the back. Okay. So, we got, some, we got some homeschool people in the room. The thing about growing up in a Christian homeschool environment is this. Um, there were certain types of content, books, stories, movies, TV shows, that were strictly forbade in the Ender's household. Okay? And if you're homeschooled, and if you grew up a Christian, maybe, maybe you know exactly what the types of things I'm talking about. Things that involved magic things that involved sorcery or spirits or things like that. Anything that could be construed as the occult was not allowed in the Ender's household. Does that kind of make sense? Kind of people know where I'm coming from? Now, here's the interesting thing. I say that. Now, some of you are wondering, okay, but you read C.S. Lewis, which, I mean, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's, we're talking about magic, wizards, sorcerers, spells, hexes, and a magical talking lion. Like, is this, is it, was this like not, this wasn't included in that, and like your, your mom's like no-go zone um, for content? That is exactly right. Now, here's, I'm about to tell you exactly why. There's this magical word. It's, an, um, it's a magical, wonderful, tricky little word, and this word is called allegory. Anyone know what the word allegory means? Everyone know? Now I'm going to show you the definition, so now most of you will know. But anyone heard the, the term allegory before? You following me? Okay, allegory is this. Here's the dictionary definition. Allegory is a story, a poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or a political one. Okay, so there you go. There's allegory. Now, in Christian terms, in Christianese, here's what allegory means. Anytime you can draw a point in a story that you're reading to a point in the biblical narrative. So I'll give you an example. You're reading a story and you start to think, ah, oh, that represents God. Like, right, that's, that's like God in the story. Or here's Jesus being represented as this character in this story. Or maybe this, this character or person is supposed to represent us in the story. Or even maybe it's a biblical theme. Like it's a theme of, of let's, say, let's say, sacrifice. Like there's a biblical theme of sacrifice. You can draw the line. You can connect the dots. A lot of times they're not very straight. You kind of have to, sometimes they're a little bit of a leap. But that is called the allegorical loophole. At least that's what I called it when I was a kid growing up. Because if I could convince my mother 
If I could convince my mother that, no, this sort of content is okay because I can draw a line of allegory from the story to the Bible. Mom, see, it's like it's just like Jesus. Then now I'm allowed to read those things. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than it sounds, right? Because I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. Lord of the Rings. Sure. Sure. Why not? Allegory all over the place, right? Good versus evil, very allegorical, that sort of thing. Even though there's wizards and there's monsters and demons and stuff like that, it's allegorical, right? I can draw it to the Bible. What I'm not allowed to do, Scooby-Doo. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. How am I supposed that? Of course not. Don't be silly. I'm, I'm supposed to convince my mother that Scooby and Shaggy are like the father and the son. Okay? It's not going to happen. Okay, I'll give you another example. Star Wars. Any Star Wars people in the room? Star Wars fans? I'm an enormous Star Wars fan. Okay? Easy allegory, right? There's a clear light side and a clear dark side, and they're in conflict with one another, and the idea is light always triumphs over dark, right? And there's these different characters, and, the, and even there's like the force, right? Which you could convince a homeschool mother that is like the Holy Spirit in a lot of ways, right? So there you go. Star Wars, totally cool, right? Star Wars works. Here's um, what doesn't work. Harry Potter, not a chance. I come to my mom with Harry Potter all the time. I wanted to watch Harry Potter as a kid. Not, not going to happen. What do you think? This is a homeschool for witchcraft and wizardry? That's not going to happen. It's not, not allowed. Okay, so this is how allegory begins to work. And as a kid, we would read a ton of Christian allegory. And C.S. Lewis is a prominent Christian author, so that, that's a little bit more obvious. Um, but we would read a lot of that as a kid. And I, I just remember so vividly as a child, as we'd begin to read some of these stories, my mother and, and her incredible like character acting, and she'd be getting into these stories and, and telling them with the accents and, and, and emotion and drama, and I'm so drawn in. There would be times that as we read things that were allegorically Christian, that the allegory would shine through so clearly, or that there would be a spot in the story where God was so visible to my mother um, in the story that she would stop and be, she'd be so overwhelmed by what she was reading that she would begin to cry. And I, as a kid was so annoyed. I was like, we have to keep going. Well, you, mom, you can't, you know, like you're watching a show and like someone walks in front of the TV screen. That's, it's, it feels like that. It's like, we're in the middle of a story. Here's, here's like the climax and my mom starts crying. It's like, mom, mom okay, get it. Like you're feeling for the characters, but I have to know what happens next. Right. And I wouldn't even see that sometimes as a kid, the way that that allegory was beginning to unfold. But I just think, isn't that so cool how we can read something and we read through the literal content of what we're reading or what we're watching even, and we can see a deeper meaning behind it, or rather we can see ourselves even in the story. Even the, sto the story might not be about us, but we can see ourselves in the story. You know what I'm talking about? That's pretty cool. Um, and that's kind of where I wanted to go today. There's a passage in the Bible um, that I think does that really well, at least for me. I know every time I read this story, I see a lot of myself in it. I see a lot of the ways that God um, has used my life and used the story of my life um, to really unfold the story of um, what he wants to do in me. Um, and I want to take you today to Acts chapter 9. So if you've got that paper-wise or digitally, go ahead and grab that. It's also going to be on the screen, so you won't have to worry if you don't have it. But I want to set it up for you a little bit while you turn there and while I grab a drink of water. So... Acts chapter 9. We've been in the series called Road Trip. Now it's had to do with the video you just watched, excuse me, before I came up here to speak. Um, it's a series that we've been in, and essentially what this is about is we've been taking the last few weeks to sort of strategically walk through some of the early churches um, that are planted in the first century. 
So we're reading these letters that are written specifically to the Church of Philippi and some of the other churches that we've explored. Um, and we're reading what is written to them to address some of the specific issues and themes that they're, they're kind of dealing with during that day, right? Does that make sense? So um, the interesting thing is all of the books or all of the, the content that we've read so far from the Bible has been written by one author. One author has written, written every single one of these letters, and his name is Paul. Now, I think we're all, for, at least for the most part, familiar with who Paul is and what kind of role he plays in the Bible. Um, he actually, I think Paul is a really, really big deal in pretty much the whole Bible. In fact, when you talk about Paul, you're talking about a guy who is like, comes right after maybe Jesus. When we talk about like the most important biblical characters, we're talking about David and, and Jonah and Paul and Jesus. Like these are the kind of the names that we talk about. He actually wrote 28% of the New Testament himself. 28% of the New Testament of our Bible um, was written by this one guy. His name is Paul. Now you might be wondering like what in the world this guy has done to earn this sort of status in the kingdom. Because again, we think of Paul as like, um, I mean, he's like a heavy hitter for the kingdom of God. He's like this, this warrior for the Lord. He's like this really big deal in Christian world, right? Um, but a lot of you a lot of you might know this, some of you might not. Paul has a little bit of a history. So here's what I want to do. I want to take the story of Paul back in time. Back in time to before he wrote any of these letters, before he was even called Paul, he went by a different name, his name was Saul, um, and tell you a little bit of his story today. Um, just to sort of like, the, the, today's sermon is the prequel to the series we, we just uh, were in. So if you don't like prequels, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do my very best. So here's the story of a guy named Saul before he met Jesus and wrote all of these books that we have been reading the last few weeks. I'll tell you a little bit about Saul first, and we'll get to this passage, I promise, I didn't forget. So... Saul, he's a Jewish guy, an extremely, extremely devout Jewish guy. He's so devout, he belongs to this sort of set-apart group of Jews called the Pharisees, which a lot of you are maybe familiar with what that word is and have heard that kind of tossed around before, maybe in a negative context. Um, extremely devout religious guy. He would have known what was known as the Bible then, which is our Old Testament now, like the back of his hand. In fact, he would have had the first five books of that Bible memorized completely, word for word. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You know it. Now, I'll be honest, as, as one of your pastors here at the Center Church, not necessarily the most riveting and exciting chapters of the Bible, books of the Bible. I'll, I'll be real honest with you. I don't know if I can say that. I'm going to say it now, though. He would have had those completely and totally Memorized, just to give you a little context for how devout he was as a Jew. And as this, this first century church starts to rise up in the area that he is in, as he begins to see these followers of Jesus begin to grow and more and more people come to know about Jesus and believe in him as their savior, that stands in direct contradiction to what he believes as a Jewish person. There can be no Messiah that came and died to save people from their sins, at least not yet. That's what Paul's of the opinion of, Saul at the time, right? So Saul makes it his job to go ahead, find Christians, and to persecute them to the fullest extent of the law. He is literally, in the most literal sense, a professional Christian persecutor. That's what he does. Persecutor of Christians, let's say. So he's traveling town to town to town to do that. He often, even to the point of death, will persecute Christians. There's, there's passages in the Bible where we see Saul standing there with the jackets of people who are stoning Christians in his hand, witnessing it, 
advising it, encouraging it. This is who Saul is. So this is where we find Saul in this passage. He's literally doing that as we pick up here. He's heading to a town called Damascus. um, And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 9. Verse 1. I want to just read this to you uh, today. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, the way basically means a follower of Jesus, found anyone there that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as a prisoner to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light came from heaven and flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, understandably so, I think we, we can kind of notice the parts of Saul slash Paul's life that we focus on a lot. We talk a lot about Saul. We talk a lot about who he was before he met Jesus, the type of person um, he was and what he was involved in. We talk a lot about Paul. We talk about the guy who wrote 28% of the New Testament, who wrote all these books of the Bible, this devout man of God who suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. But we don't, understandably so, pay a whole lot of attention to this middle part here. In fact, we kind of just skim over this part where it says he was blind for three days. He was blind for three days. And here's the deal. We, a lot of time, we know the story. We're kind of like, yeah, but Paul is healed and he goes on to do other things and his life moves on. He, he doesn't know that in the story. All he knows is darkness, suffering, and shame for three days. So I want to zero in on that for a minute because <clears throat> I think that's, that's really important. I think that can speak to us a lot today. Um, Saul is in this situation now where he has been found completely and totally wrong about something that he believed very strongly he was right about. So he is facing now the shame of being spoken to by the God he was persecuting, realizing he was completely wrong, becoming blind, and then being faced with the guilt and the shame of murdering Christians who are simply trying to follow in the way of God. Saul has become now face-to-face with the reality of his sin, with the reality of his pride, with the reality of the mistakes in his life that he has made, and now he's beginning to reap some of the negative benefits or negative effects of that life. And I think that's so true. I think that's so true to how our life is today. I think sometimes some of us can follow sin and pride so deeply into our lives allow it to take us further than we ever meant to go and keep us longer than we ever meant to stay. And then we start to reap some of the negative consequences of that sin and that pride in our lives, and we find ourselves in a situation where we think, oh my God, I'm being punished. I'm being punished. I'm getting what I deserve. I'm getting what's, com- I'm getting what I, what's been coming to me. I deserve this. God, God is making me suffer uh, because of what I did. I'm, I'm, I'm paying now um, for my mistakes. And I have been there 
one million times in my life. And I, I, it's, it's hard for me to even think that's an exaggeration. I have been in so many situations in my life um, where I am so ashamed of the mistakes that I have made. I'm reaping the negative benefits of it. And I think God is now punishing me. But here's the important part. I think God would say to us today, my son, my daughter, I am not punishing you. I'm not punishing you. Because you brought this on yourself. You brought this on yourself. And I think sometimes in our life when we're just naturally reaping what we're sowing, so to speak, in terms of a sinful lifestyle, we start to see some of those consequences borne out in our lives. We think, oh, we're being punished. No, in reality, we're just, we're just getting what we did to ourselves. Now, <clears throat> Here's the amazing thing about that. I think God is in the redemption business and is in the business of of redeeming some of the messes that we make of our own life. And he steps into those situations and he says, I didn't want it to be like this. I didn't do this to you. You did this to yourself. But now watch the way that I am going to use it in your life. Watch the way that I am going to turn this around. Watch the way that I'm going to now redeem your story. I'm going to pull you out of the mess that you have found yourself in. Um, and I'm going to use your story to, 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 to spin it into a more beautiful story for your life than you ever could have imagined. And that's the beauty of what God does in those moments. Um, I, just, I just think that's so powerful. Um, and I think that we miss that sometimes. Um, and I think that's just an important lesson that we can pull from this stage in Paul's life, is that God uses those seasons of suffering in our life to save us from ourselves. God uses those seasons of suffering in our life to save us from ourselves. Again, he says, I didn't plan it like this. I didn't do this to you, but I will use it. I will use it to protect you from the decisions that you've made in your life that have found you in this mess to begin with. Um, One of the um, stories, going back to my dear mother, um, one of the stories that my mom used to used to read to us, she read to us as a kid, um, was called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Familiar with that one? It's obviously one of the installments, if you do know, it's one of the many installments of the the Chronicles of Narnia series from C.S. Lewis. Um, And it is an incredible book. I would seriously advise that you go and read it because the allegory is strong in this book. Um, But something that I remember um, about this book is it starred this character named Eustace Scrub. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Eustace Clarence Scrub, I believe was his name. And actually, the the opening line of the book, C.S. Lewis writes, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it, which I think is (laughs) one of the most brilliant opening lines of a book ever written. Um, Eustace Clarence Scrub sucks. He is an insufferable character for a large portion of the book. He is greedy. He is prideful. He is selfish. He betrays his friends. Um, He seeks to advance himself at any cost. He doesn't care about the people around him. Eustace is the worst. And throughout the course of the beginning of the book, at least, those personality traits begin to bear themselves out in real life over and over and over and over again. He lets his friends down. He pursues his own um, ends. Um, He doesn't care about what's going on around him. He only cares about himself. He's a brat. and, And you're meant to hate Eustace. 
I think I can say that. You're meant to dislike Eustace. Now, this is a fantasy book, like I said, that involves a magical talking lion and magic and all these different things. I'll let you read that and fill in the rest of the gaps yourself. But I'll tell you this. There comes a point in the book, there comes a point in the book where Eustace finds himself so deep in his own pride, his own greed, and his own selfishness that he ends up being turned into a dragon. Again, that's a leap. Read the book. You'll understand. He's turned into a dragon. And as he's turned into a dragon, um, he, he was wearing this, like, this metal bracelet when he was a boy. And as he expands into a dragon, this bracelet is cutting into his skin. And it hurts. And he's ugly. And he can't talk to his friends anymore. And he can't communicate. And he's scared. And he doesn't know what's going on around him. And he suddenly realizes, oh my God, this is what I've done to myself. And that I'm, I deserve this. I'm now being punished for what an awful person that I have been. And in the story, a character named Aslan, who is the lion, who allegorically, spoiler alert, represents God in the story, comes to Eustace. And he begins to approach Eustace, and Eustace obviously is, is, is wanting to be transformed back into a boy. He's, again, he's scared, and um, he doesn't know what's going on, and he's in pain, and he's, he, he doesn't know if he's going to be stuck like this forever. And what Aslan essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, what he essentially says is, I can help you. I can turn you back into a boy. I can remove these scales. Um, but you're going to have to let me painstakingly remove every single one of these scales from you. And it's going to hurt, and it's going to take a lot of time. So there's this incredible scene in the book where Aslan is just is tearing away the scales from this dragon as the dragon just roars in pain. And it's this big, dramatic scene. And I remember reading it as a kid. Why? Because my mom was completely in tears. And once again, I did not understand why. I said, Mom, we got it. I get it, you're, you're moved for Eustace, you feel bad for him, it hurts, like we've got to know what happens though. Does he like become a boy again? Like what happens to, with the rest of the story? What I didn't realize is my mom, being an adult and having lived life, having made mistakes, having seen the way that sin hurts people over and over and over again, was so struck with the allegory of that story being this, that we get so stuck in our own sin and we pay a premium for some of the mistakes that we make in our own life simply because of our foolishness and our pride. But we serve a loving God that no matter what is always there and is always willing to step into the mess of our lives, the mess that we've made for ourselves and, and begin a healing process in us. Again, some of it hurts. As we said earlier, God uses those seasons of suffering in our lives to save us from ourselves. God says, you've done this to yourself, but I will heal you. You've made these choices in your life, but I will redeem them. And I think that's such an amazing image. And I think it just totally changes the way you read that story. When you, when you read it as an adult versus reading it as a kid, you just kind of want to know what literally happens next. Um, but that's so clearly an image of the way that God steps into our lives and begins to redeem those things. Um, really quickly, I want to take us back to Acts 9. Um, and then I'm going to close. So actually, Ben, if you want to come back up here, um, they're going to lead us in a moment, a song called Living Hope. And I'm going to sing it um, with everything I've got um, because I think it's just so powerful and it speaks so well to what we're talking about today. We're back to Acts 9, though. 
We find Paul, again, he's been led into this town, doesn't know what's going on. He thinks, God is probably punishing me for all that I've done. He probably thinks he's never going to see again. Here's the amazing part of this story. God calls to a guy named Ananias before this passage in a dream and says, hey, I I want you to go to this house and I want you to talk to this guy. He's there, his name is Saul, and he's blind and I want you to pray for him so he can see again. And Ananias goes, "Mm -mm, mm -mm. no, I know exactly who that guy is and I know exactly what he'll do to me when I get there and go to talk to him. And God says, no, you don't understand. I I want you to go to the house. I want you to pray over Saul and I want him to be healed so that he can see again because I have such an incredible plan for his life that he has no idea about yet. I need you to go and I need you to tell him. So I have to imagine sort of reluctantly Ananias goes to the house where Saul is staying. Again, cold, hungry, hasn't had anything to drink, been blind for three days. I imagine him kind of scared, sitting in a corner somewhere. This is what happens. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Do you think C.S. Lewis was familiar with Acts chapter 9 as he was writing about Eustace the dragon? It's incredible. And the more incredible thing is that that Saul becomes healed and, and, and he moves on with his life, but you don't even see yet the ways that God is going to use him. You don't even see yet the way that God is going to redeem his story. In fact, time and time and time again, as Paul goes on in his life and he's talking to other Christians about God, he, he is sure to remind them over and over to say, if you think you've gone too far, look at my life. I'm as bad as they come. I am as sinful as they come. I... Paul repeatedly refers to himself as the chief of sinners. He said, but that's the point of all of this. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point of Jesus. That no matter what, no matter how far you think you are, no matter how far gone you think you are, God will take that story. He will redeem it. So I want to pray for us today. Um, I don't know if that's you um, in a season of suffering today. Um, maybe feeling this morning like you're being held captive to um, sin, uh, a mistake you've made in your past. Maybe you think that's you today. You're suffering because you're being punished. I want to speak specifically to something else very quickly too. There there are people in this room right now that I know are suffering. Um, I do not want to confuse you and try to say that you're suffering because of something that you've done, okay? I just want to clarify, that's not what we're talking about this morning. That every single one of us in this room have dealt with hard things. It's not from God. I don't think God's making any one of us suffer. What I am saying is sometimes in instances where our sin causes us to suffer, God wants to step in and redeem that. He will step in and redeem any story. But I'm speaking specifically to suffering that's caused by sin today. So I want you to, I want to be clear about that this morning. But maybe that's you right now. Maybe you're in a season of like, man, I have just really made a mess of things. I've really screwed up this relationship. I have really messed up in my family. Um, 
I, I've, I've messed up a relationship that I have maybe with one of my kids or with my parent. Um, I'm, I'm just reaping the negative benefits of mistakes that I've made. I want you to know that God loves you and he is there and he is so ready and excited to take your story and weave it into something beautiful. That is one of the greatest promises of the Bible. Um, and I want to just speak that over us um, this morning. So I want to pray. If that's you today, would you just kind of join with me in agreement this morning um, as I do so? Heavenly Father, you're so good. We give you thanks for today, um, just for this opportunity to be able to be here together, to worship together, um, to be able to step into your presence, uh, just to be a part of what you're doing here at the Center Church. But God, I just ask specifically, um, right now, as I pray, that you would begin to loosen um, bonds of sin in this room. God, where there is grief and suffering that is caused by that, God, we, we ask for you to deliver. Um, Father, we ask for you to take those stories, to take those stories and to weave them into something beautiful because you promise us that in your word. So we're holding on to that this morning, Father. God, would you take this morning, would you continue to mold our hearts today? As we sing here in a moment, would you transform us into the people that you're calling us to be? Lord, we'll give you all the praise and all the thanks for everything that you're doing here today. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.